Hey everyone. In this episode, we have my dear friend, Jamie Dunlavy. Jamie has spent over two decades as a firefighter paramedic on the bordering outskirts of the nation's capital. And we'll be discussing some of that, but the core tenet of today's episode will be spent on grief. Jamie has been kind enough to share some of his life story, and through it, we learn what it takes to say, I need help. Resiliency, mindset, relationships, true self-care and growth, retirement, and next stages in life. And we do it through the lens of one of the kindest men I know. So anyone who crosses paths with Jamie knows that he leaves you with a full heart. So thank you, Jamie. Much love to you and yours. Thanks for listening in. Forged an Unbroken podcast. I think I was telling you about this a while back, and it's like a good little icebreaker. I think the first time I met you was actually at your dad's pool, and you were already a firefighter. You were with Mindy, and I was, um, all I remember is you're, you're hanging out because your dad had like a little kegerator, and I think you're just drinking beer by the pool. And that sounds right. I'm a, probably just a snot nosed kid, just playing in the pool and it was just that generational difference though because you know me i have three of other brothers and your dad was kind enough to open up the house and like we'd go hang out there and i remember like there were conversations about you being in the fire department but um it just hadn't registered yet and then here we are probably uh 25 years later or something yeah. now and you know i have obviously since been in the fire service and we've crossed paths now through uh, your dad and mutual friends in the gym. So it's just a, I thought it was interesting when that like dawned on me that I'm not even in the fire service, but I'm playing in the pool and you're hanging out and then where you're at in life. Like, I, I don't know if you had just started or what, but I think so many of yeah. us, that's how we started though. We yeah. found other people. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. What was it that initially got you into the fire service like what was the what was the why was there events was there a passion for it like what was it so i think uh for me i graduated from high school and i really didn't know what i wanted to do with my life i didn't know what direction it was going to go uh i I struggled in high school i was not a good student (laughs) and um and so after i got out i actually moved up to frederick i grew up in harrod county and um i started volunteering up here after a friend of mine ian had been volunteering for about a year and uh, he really enjoyed it and so I went in and checked it out and as soon as I went in I was hooked yeah. and at the time I was going to school I thought I'd probably be a psychologist or a social worker or something mm. like that and so there are a lot of elements of the fire department that I felt like I wanted to be able to make an impact and to help people yeah and that's what it was always about yeah and you said this was like college age yeah right? yeah. yeah so but, I, I just graduated i graduated and i moved up up to frederick okay yeah that's funny the psychology and social worker side of things make sense knowing you or just knowing like your passion for service it kind of 
yeah. I see the plays into it. It it was such a perfect fit for me. Yeah. Um, because I was able to do a lot of that uh, within the the department. Yeah. Either with other individuals in the department or certainly with uh, the people that I was interacting with. For mm-hmm. me, every interaction was a patient with a patient was an opportunity to get to learn something about them. Yeah. I always kind of had a policy where, um, especially if I had an elderly person in the back, where I would just sit down with them and I always said do you still work? You know, even if I knew they weren't working, but it's an icebreaker and it's a way to open up. And by doing that, you get to hear these amazingly beautiful vignettes about people, um, you know, just a little glimpse of their life because that's what we get in the fire department is little glimpses of people. Sure. But everyone has a story and every story is actually pretty amazing if you stop and listen to it. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so, so much of the work I did in the fire department, I felt like that was a big part of it. Yeah. No, that's amazing. The, uh, <clears throat> that just reminded me of, I was young in the department and it was actually about this time of year, a blizzard came through Maryland and we had, um, some old lady, the smoke detector was going off middle of the day. So we're trudging through like literally like almost waist high snow. We get in there and we see a bunch of medals on the wall and we get to talking and her husband was there and we found out that her husband was not easy company, but one of the other sister companies to the guy who the movie band of brothers was made about. Right. He's like, I know all those guys, like here's pictures, here's medals, here's what these. And just as one small example of like what we get to do when we go into people's homes. But yeah, we are put know. in a place of trust where people open their door to us and let mm-hmm. us into their home no matter the condition. And, you know, I know you're just talking about that trudging through the snow for a smoke detector, yeah. you know, and a lot of people could be upset by that. feel like it's a waste of their time, but I think mm-hmm. it's a, it was always important for me to try to remember that when somebody calls 911, you, you hope that, that they're calling because they need a solution to their problem. Yeah. And that's what we are in a lot of ways as yeah. a solution to the problem. Yeah. We don't, always realize that people people other people don't realize that there are maybe other services like when they need help and they don't know where else to turn a lot of times it is us and we don't necessarily think it's maybe in our job description but that's just one other way where we can connect and help and i mean yes we can be jacks of all trades like we, we sometimes we have to figure things out on the fly but um it's always bothered me and sometimes I have to catch myself when like the call comes out and you see the guys or girls go oh my god are you serious yeah but it's just we I I have to catch myself because it's just another way to connect and for a lot of people their bandwidth for whatever that problem may or may not be um maybe they don't have a lot of bandwidth and our bandwidth is a little greater than most you know for struggle and strife and stress so um yeah that's just a way that we can hopefully take care of other people because that's the essence of what we do. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now where you're, you were at, how long, how long had you been volunteering before you started going through the hiring process and got hired? Uh, it was a number of years. So I, I, I started, I tried to get hired at that time. It was pretty difficult. Oh yeah. Uh, a lot of hiring freezes. So I started working for private ambulance in Baltimore and did that for a couple of years. Uh, and I worked on getting my paramedic during that time. And as soon as I got my paramedic, you know, the phone's doors open. (laughs) What time frame was that? Like what years? Uh, So that would have been 1995, 96. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I was living in Baltimore at the time. 
uh, mm-hmm. moved back down there and was working down there uh, before I ended up moving back up to Frederick. Okay. So at some point in there, um, I was living in Baltimore and um, I met my future wife mm-hmm. um, and um, she was going out to dinner with some friends. <clears throat> I had just finished working a double and she walked down the steps and the moment I saw her, I knew that I was going to marry her. That was it. Yep. And, uh, and we had an incredible um, relationship, incredible marriage. Yeah. And uh, it, it really shaped my life, meeting Mindy. Yeah. Um, it changed the direction of my life and uh, it took on a much different tone after that. Yeah, yeah. So you, you had not been hired yet when you met her? I had not. Uh, no, I was still working in Baltimore at okay. that time. So then you got hired for the department that you retired from, and you're married by this point. Yes. Looking back, because a lot of, not not most, or I'm going to say not all, but like I'd say a good chunk of men and women get into the service probably prior to marriage. Yeah. Just if you know, just being younger. Um. Just right off the cuff, how do you think that shaped your outlook? on just the workforce and life and dealing with the things that we deal with being a married man going into the work, work compared to being a single guy. Cause me, a single guy, like I'm still, I was going to bars and coming into work getting IVs, you know, <laughs> like it was a very different time in my life. So I mean, we definitely, there was definitely some of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. You still had a good time. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, so I, I guess your question is how, did being married change for me? Yeah, you and said it was something that was life-changing. I think for me, my emphasis was always on my marriage. My marriage was always my first priority. Yeah. Um, I understood that the, the toll that work was going to take mm-hmm. uh, from a pretty early age. Yeah. And um, I think that uh, I wanted to be as healthy as I could be um, going through this. And, you know, I think we all recognize at some point this job is going to take something from you. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is recognizing that and then finding the help that you need Yeah. in order to be as healthy as I can possibly be to be the best partner that I can be. Yeah. Where I think as a single person, uh, so much more of the emphasis is just on going out there and doing it. Um, and then we deal with the consequences later. Yeah, sure. It's... Um Let's ease into that. So where you uh, worked, I mean, you're outside the nation's capital. Yes. It's a busy department, and the grand scheme of departments is a pretty sizable department. Yes. I knew where you ended up towards the back end. Were you always there? No, I started at actually at at the busiest station down there. Okay. uh, And did that for nine years. Um, And then actually once my wife Mindy she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2006 okay and I recognized that um I was probably gonna need to take some more time Mm -hmm. um and uh put work a little bit more on the back burner so at that point I took a transfer to a slower station um so that I could focus more on that yeah we'll go professional and then switch to the personal absolutely what I mean, be a, being a paramedic just outside the nation's capital at the busiest house, 
like for lack of a better word, sometimes it can always be demeaning, right? Like it, yes. it can really mess with you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, like all of it. Yes. You did that for a long time, for nine years. It's a long time as a paramedic at a busy house. I mean, you're talking thousands and thousands of runs, just you. Um, I guess kind of a two-part question. What were some of the more memorable parts of that? And two, how did you handle that in a healthy way? Or how did you not? Or maybe were the times where it wasn't so healthy? Like, yeah, I, I think that that was a, a real learning process for me. So initially, it probably wasn't as healthy as it should have been. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people, um, I resorted to alcohol. Um, yeah. And I found myself drinking uh, more than I should for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I've heard the saying that, you know, at some point I figured out that my sorrows could swim. Mm. And then for me, you know, that was, it, it really, I, I had this, uh, aha moment where I realized that alcohol was not helping. Yeah. <laughs> and so tried to take a step back from that. And at the same time, recognize that I was struggling mentally and so utilized some of the resources that I had available to me. And that at the time was uh, we had a staff um, psychologist and psychiatrist uh, at, at within the department. And oh, so wow. I went and started talking to, to him. And he was a, an amazing resource. That's great. Yeah. And it helped me get to the next place. And it helped me also recognize that I was going to need help in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's pretty forward thinking of your department at that time to have that on staff. Like that's still, people are still trying to catch on to that now. And yeah. you're talking about this was something that was going on 20 plus years ago. That would have been 2006. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's all. That's pretty amazing. What were, you mentioned the drinking, what were some of the red flags that you, uh, I don't know, maybe confirmed with the therapist or like, I know these are these are things like you mentioned the alcohol, but what what else was there that like? Oh no, I need to I need to take care of this. I think um, we're all pretty able to get in a place where we're doing some destructive things to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was I'd put on weight. Um, I wasn't taking care of myself. I was drinking too much. I wasn't exercising the way that I should. Yeah. Um, so I went. And after I got therapy, I was able to turn a lot of that around and change my diet, start getting regular exercise, recognizing that, you know, there was a lot of stress in life and trying to minimize that Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to um, making it worse by digging myself a deeper hole. Yeah. Yeah. Having been through, we'll say some of my own journey as well i know that sometimes things when you go through that process as you start to open up some of these boxes or reopen some of these wounds or scars that they get worse before they get better yeah um i go back to word endurance like how because it's not just it's not a constant upward shift when you zoom out and look over the entire journey sure it's an upward trend but there's a lot of zigzags and ups and downs during that how was it that you were able to endure through in just that process? Um, not even getting to what you and your wife experienced yet. Like, so many people like at the first sign of stress, are like what, you know, what is this all for? Or I'm going to go back to my old ways or it's too much. Like, how'd you get through that? I think a lot of that goes back to my base and a big part of my base is my father. 
Mm. Um, you know my dad. Yeah. Um, he was the hospital chaplain at Howard County for, I think, 35 years or Long something time, like yeah. that. Um, and so growing up, um, he was always um, very open, and he allowed us to be the people that we were meant to be. Yeah. Um, and he gave us the opportunity to grow. Yeah. Um, and that was a huge gift. Um, and my dad grew up with a father who he really struggled with. Um, he was abusive, and he really struggled with that. And my dad knew that he wanted something different from his life. And so he committed himself to becoming the father that he always wanted. And in doing that, um, he allowed me to be the son that he always wanted to be. Yeah. And it was a real gift. Um, yeah. You know, as an adult, I'm able to look back and see that. Uh, but we've always had a, a very open and honest relationship. And it's allowed me to be the person I am in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah, your dad's an amazing man. He really is. Yeah. yeah. Not a whole lot of people know that, but your dad married Jess and I in our own yes. backyard. Yes. And uh yeah, I still, you know, see him every so often and he uh man, he's just a, a sense of calm. He is indeed. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where I get a lot of that from as well. hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and I, I am actually I'll be getting married um June eighth and my dad will be marrying us. Oh, is that right? So yeah, oh, that's in, amazing. In, in our backyard. So <laughs> We can both share that on. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Oh, well, congrats. That's thank yeah, you. That's amazing. He's such a yeah, such a calming presence. He is. Um, memorable, memorable incidents, like anything that really, like really sticks with you, good or bad. It's interesting you say that. I feel like um, so much of it has been blocked out. It's interesting. Yeah. You know, sometimes you. Um, sit down with some other people that you've gone through this with and often you know somebody might remember a call mm -hmm. or an incident and i'll have no recollection of it or i'll have a recollection of a call and the person that i'm talking to has no memory of that yeah. whatsoever yeah. so it's always interesting sitting down with other people and just kind of dissecting for sure what really happened um Again, I would say probably some of my most um, memorable calls are the ones that involve connections with people. Yeah. I mean, we're all out there. You know, we're all doing the, the blood and the guts and the fire and all of that. And, you know, and there's a lot of um, energy uh, wrapped up in that. Mm -hmm. But for me, I don't know that those are always the most memorable calls. Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably the little things. Oh, I can... I can totally resonate with that. Sometimes it's the the things you aren't expecting, the little the little touch points and the yeah. the conversations, like you said, you've had with you know certain generations or certain people going through things and hearing yes. just that little slice of their story. I think sometimes you know, as I was saying earlier, we just get this little glimpse into people's lives. Um, something that comes to mind is uh, I had a patient that came back um, to me and um, just to thank us. Mm -hmm. um, and she had been run over um, twice by a neighbor. She was out walking her dog, mm. and she was in the A post, and he made the turn, and he rolled her over, dragged her down the road. I remember pulling up on the call and looking down and just thinking, oh, this is a DOA. Yeah. And I remember going over and, you know, touching her shoulder, and she moaned. Mm. And I knew that she was in bad shape. And I made a decision to fly her out um, from 
downtown yeah. to the trauma center as opposed to taking her to the local trauma center. And I caught some heat for that, hmm. but I knew I'd made the right decision. Yeah, good. And um, she had to learn how to walk. And so a year later, uh, she came back <clears throat> into the station to thank us. And yeah. we developed a friendship, uh, and we've maintained that friendship to this day. Wow. Um, yeah. So we literally met by accident, and <laughs> we've maintained that. That's amazing. You just mentioned something, and this is um, something I talk about on occasion, and it's near and dear to me, is <clears throat> that there are going to be times in life when you are going to encounter a situation that by all measure is in the gray. You know, that's where we operate so often. Very little is black and white, but we have rules and policies and maybe whatever we're dealing with, whether it's treatment of a person, a working fire, or just a policy within a station, something out in life that there's a rule for. The rules have been in place because of maybe other things that have happened or other human beings with their perspectives have put this rule down on paper and they're there for a reason. Every so often though, you encounter a situation where you're like, you know what? There's higher moral ground here at play. Yes. And I need to dig into that because me personally, there is higher moral standing and in doing so it's going to break this rule. That's right. I think the important thing to remember is, is it justifiable? Can I justify this action? Mm -hmm. Am I doing what's in the best interest of the patient Mm -hmm. or the incident? Yeah. Um, Every situation is unique. Yeah. And as long as I can justify what I'm doing for the benefit of the call, then I think it's okay. Yeah. I think, you know, I guess a lot of departments are going to more um, guidelines as opposed to... um, Hard and fast. Yeah. Yeah is a way to kind of get around that a little bit, a little more flexibility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to give you the opportunity to deviate as long as you can back it up. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I I certainly appreciate that. And sometimes um, your car's going to get punched and you're going to be brought up in front of people. You <laughs> and are. And you got to be willing to do that. I, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, you have to be willing to be like, all right, I'm going against the grain here, but, you know, I feel like I can defend this one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, honestly, at the time when you're doing that, though, that's not what you're thinking. You know, you're not thinking, how am I going to defend this? You're thinking, this is what I need to do to make this work. Yeah. I'll defend it later. I'll figure that part out later. Yeah. I think that's a good um, benchmark. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, yeah, if you you feel full of conviction in the moment. I had another guy tell me that, um, hey, if you can sleep well at night, no matter what, even if you lose your job, if you can sleep well at night, um, knowing that you did the right thing. I mean, that's kind of a... I don't know about you, but I've been retired for uh, over two years now, and I'm not sleeping well at night, so... <laughs> You're still getting <laughs> Maybe used you to it. Maybe you something I don't, Josh. Can you help me out with that one? Man, I'm, I'm figuring it out. I, I well, let me know, because I, I'll tell you, that one's still... You know, you get up to pee in the middle of the night, and you're up for an hour and a half. And, yeah. You know, it's just old habits die hard that way. Sure. It has gotten better after two years, but... It is definitely one of those areas that needs work. Yeah. Do you feel like your body's still on alert a little bit? Uh, always. Always, yeah. Yes. Is it... So the two common things I hear are rumination and maybe a subset of that or like... And sometimes it'd be its own category, some hypervigilance. 
what what's it play for you? It's interesting you talk about hypervigilance. I remember I came into the gym one day and I was having a tough time and we started talking about hypervigilance and actually a lot of that was really helpful for me. And I think yeah. that is a lot of it for me is hypervigilance. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I certainly still catch myself, you know, all the time. I don't know if it's part of the season, you know, being indoors more or whatever, but um, I certainly catch myself. Doing what? Doing um ruminating on things that could happen yeah and i'm not somebody who is like a what do you call it helicopter parent yeah like i like my kids to be able to go and do things and experience things and if something does bother me i might might be like hey you know maybe consider this outcome kids and then i could try to let them do their own thing um but in the back of my mind a lot i like i have a creative imagination like there's so many like i'm i'm going through all the what ifs and what if those things happen how am i going to go through that um and that could be something with kids it can be with uh relationships like family life wife um something at work like and then i then you start ruminating on it and then you put it through a cycle and it keeps playing and we talked about this just um the other day about how acknowledging how so many of these things are external to you Yes. And you have no control over them. That's right. Yeah. We, we had a really great, very quick conversation on that the other day. Um, you had you had some really just golden, <laughs> like 60-second nuggets for me when you were talking about that. Because I think you were kind of, I don't know if you were going through something as well, but you were, you were mentioning how so many of these things are external. They are, yeah. Um, I, I, and, I, and I mean, I'm happy to share that yeah, you please. Know, with you. Um, <clears throat> so... Something I figured out in life, and as I was saying the other day, this is a practice, and these are all things that we're practicing. I don't claim to be an expert in anything at all. (laughs) I'm just trying to figure it out myself. So for me, um, so for so many years with the fire department, working as a paramedic in a busy station, and then um, once my wife was diagnosed with cancer, I lived with so much stress yeah. all of the time. It was at home, it was at work, and I couldn't get away from it. And so obviously that took a mental and physical toll on me. Um, but um, what was the original question, Josh? <laughs> the how acknowledging how things are external to you. <clears throat> um, and so I, I learned that... Um, I think when I was going through that, I didn't recognize it. Yeah. It's only after the fact that I'm able to see um, now. So I'm in a different place in life, um, and I've got a lot of things going on, um, selling a house and, and working on building a house mm-hmm. and started a new relationship and gotten engaged. And so there's a lot of you know things happening in life. Um, and we're doing a lot of things... Um, in order to get a life into a different place. And it's very intentional Mm. and it's very calculated. And that's the difference in that type of stress. Mm. You know, this is stress that I've imposed on myself and it's okay, as opposed to the stress of cancer, which is just handed a pile of (laughs) something. And then, Mm. you know, you have to try to make something from that. Um, And you had asked me earlier um, about a lot of my perspective on a lot of that. And a lot of that I owe to my wife. Um, Mm. Mindy 
had an incredible outlook on life. She had the ability um, to see the sunshine, the rainbow, and anything in life. So, um, so after she was diagnosed, she went through chemo, and and so we would sit in the chemo chair, and it became our date. We would just spend the day together going to chemo, um, and she she never met a stranger. Yeah. She never met, you know. Uh, so even we would sit at chemo, and she would make friends with people. She would go in for a medical procedure, um, even going under sedation. She come up with telephone numbers from from the people in the operating room. Yeah, it, she was remarkable. Wow. And so so much of this journey was because of her. Like I said earlier, she was very open to everything that was going on, and she allowed everyone to go through that with her. Yeah. And so by doing that, um, it really allowed me to express what I needed to express too. Oh, good. I mean, not to use like a canned word here, but she like made the you're all space safe enough to like be comfortable in your own skin and show some happiness and gratitude. And absolutely. Yeah. That's huge to have that environment, especially when all the things around you, you can so easily get sucked into that. She had an incredible outlook and, um, so she uh, she was remarkable. So this whole time, so in 2006, she was diagnosed. Okay. And then in 2013, actually in November 2012, she ran the New York City Marathon. It was probably the best run of her life. She had an wow. incredible day. I was running ultras at the time. So I just, I ran all through the city and just caught up with her at all these different places. And so in that way, we did it together. The idea of running with that many people for me is <laughs> not something that I knew I was going to enjoy. So yeah, yeah. we both got to do it our way. Awesome. And then uh, January 1st, um, 2013, we went up to run um, just a local race. And she couldn't run one mile. Mm. And so we knew something was wrong. And we went in. And shortly after that, we found out um, that her breast cancer had spread to her liver about 85% of her liver was consumed with tumors. And it was pressing on her diaphragm, and that was causing her to not be able to breathe. Okay. And so at the time, I mean, that was obviously, it felt um, it felt like the end. You had uh, such improvement. You had a long time of improvement, and then this hit. Yes, yes. We had many years. After she was diagnosed in 2006, it was... Uh, it was in many ways it was a gift it was an invitation for us to learn how to live our life differently yeah and a big part of that was we both loved to travel so at the time i was building a house um by myself and uh it my priorities changed yeah and i stopped doing so much on the house and started doing more things that brought us joy yeah and a big part of that was to travel and we had the opportunity to travel all over the world, every continent. Yeah. Every, I mean, just so many incredible experiences doing that and doing that together. Um, what did that give you just outside of the experiences and the joy? Because I think, let me toss this up to you, especially in our line of work, it can almost feel selfish. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> to get away or to enjoy yourself uh, too much. But that is such an important part yeah. of what we have to do in order to make it through this. 
yes. to find places for ourselves to be comfortable mm -hmm. and healthy and happy. Yeah. So we have to create those opportunities for ourselves. Yeah. As firefighters, we're all pretty industrious. So much of our self-worth is tied to how industrious we are often. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but still to this day, I, I have a really hard time just sitting down, mm. um, not being productive. That is, oh my God, yeah. That is a huge th common theme yeah. I'm seeing all over the place, yeah. So when you travel, um, first of all, it gives you gratitude for what we have, especially if you go to other countries mm -hmm. and you realize how good we have it. Even in the face of cancer, you see how incredibly blessed we are oh, yeah. to have what we have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, so many people around the world um, don't have the opportunities that we do. So it opens you up to that, to realize how, how wonderful life really is. Yeah. Um, I think for me, travel is a way to experience, um, what life really is. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know exactly how to say that other than to say it's, uh, I, I can put everything else on the side, mm -hmm. you know, put it, put it put it down and just focus on that, focus on travel. Sure. And to um, really fall into that. Um, so we always did a lot of pretty hardcore travel, um, just you know, strap a backpack on, have a ticket to somewhere. I remember one morning I got to work, it was about four o'clock in the morning. I used to always get down to work early because mm. of traffic and I'd go down and work out, go for a run, do whatever. And um, looked on the, internet it was probably it was before five o'clock in the morning and i found these cheap flights to vietnam <laughs> and so i called my wife early in the morning which always scared me you know i didn't like to do that because yeah, sure. i didn't want to upset her but i called her i said i found these flights said, yeah let's do it <laughs> and so we bought these tickets it was we were there for over a month i don't remember how long it was exactly but we had no agenda whatsoever we simply That's got on an airplane we did have a, a reservation the first night but then we just traveled by word of mouth, which is something that we love to do. Yeah. Go somewhere, talk to other travelers, talk to locals. Yeah. Where, where do they go? What would they suggest? Stay out of the guidebooks and just go experience what it is. Yeah. And I think for me, that's life in its simplest form. And yeah. you're, I'm able to do that when I travel. You don't have all these other outside influences. Mm -hmm. You can make it what you want. Yes. And with so much, for lack of better words, bullshit on the radio and news and social media, <clears throat> the fact that you get to connect with people and realize that everybody has their own experiences, and when you take all the BS and politics and news out of it, people are just people, and they want to have their people. own experiences, and you can f meet really amazing people and hear really amazing stories, and realize how kind people truly are you always got to watch out for little things here and there for sure but then you go like you said you get the local feel and then you get to taste like the real local food and hear the real local music and uh yeah it's life-changing it it's is absolutely life-changing the fact that you can go find a cheap ticket and go take off yeah and go to vietnam like so many people like no i have to have things planned really tight and i got to keep it clean this is too impulsive 
but you kind of flip the script on that. You're like, no, we're going. But that's just what worked for us. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, you know, for some people having that planned travel is, is that's what they need. And yeah, that's, sure. that's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's about finding a way that do, does it, that works for you. Yeah. When you got the diagnosis of things had met out to her liver, did, how did that rock your all's foundation or what? So for me, it was the first time that I recognized. So that, that's, you know, that's a stage four diagnosis. That's a terminal diagnosis. At stage okay. four, there is no treatment that is going to make this better. We can, we can manage <clears throat> it. We can work with it. But there is no cure at that point. Yeah. And so that was the first time that I realized that I was going to lose my wife to cancer. I didn't know when. I didn't know how. But, you know, I recognized that this was happening, that this was unfolding in front of me. And so, again, I went and I started uh, getting therapy um, just to prepare myself for that. You were proactive. Because I didn't know. And I recognized what it was doing to me already. Yeah. And, again, it was immensely helpful. Um, you know, it, it, it was still a very difficult time. And... Um, I struggled an awful lot, but I can't imagine how much I would have struggled had I not. Yeah, sure. And so then in, um, so she was, after, in 2013, she was given a medication that, that was still experimental to just come on, and it worked remarkably well, mm. where she had 85% tumor involvement, it went down to about 12%. Wow. And... She was able to stay on that medication for several years until uh, the efficacy ran off, mm-hmm. ran out. And then um, at that point, it was, it was kind of game over. Yeah. Uh, and it had spread to her brain. Uh, they found a tumor on her cerebellum about the size of a walnut. Okay. And they went in and they removed it. And she did incredibly well. She continued to run through this whole thing. She continued to exercise. Wow. Um, through chemotherapy, brain, radi- brain radiation, as well as brain surgery. And she did, she did remarkably well. And, um, and then she was diagnosed with a second brain tumor, and she had a second surgery. And again, she did really very well, but at that time, we recognized there were a lot of spots in her brain. And um, in an, um, I think at that point, I, I saw how, how, um, this was going to go. Yeah. And she didn't because she's an internal optimist and, um, she continued to live her best life. And, um, I think Josh, um, once I recognized that uh, I was going to lose her, that I realized that I had to start this process. Mm-hmm. And that was incredibly difficult because I recognized in that that I had to let part of her go in order to do that. And I had to create something of myself in order to be able to get through this, a different version of myself yeah. in a lot of ways. <clears throat> And that's hard. Uh, the whole thing is hard. And when I, when I recognized that 
I was considering becoming a statistic as one of my options out of this, as a way to get out of this pain and this hurt, I realized that I was in really, really big trouble. Yeah. And so I called two of my buddies from the fire department, and they both immediately connected me with one, um, with somebody who specializes in grief, trauma, and loss, and another one with a staff psychologist from work. Mm -hmm. And I started working with them. And this was all going on while um, she was dying, you know, slowly. Yeah. She was an incredibly healthy person, you know, and so all of her organs were good. Everything was good um, except cancer. And, uh, and so it was a very long journey. Yeah. Um, that really surprised me, to be honest with you. Uh, so much of my experience as a paramedic, I thought I knew what death looked like. I thought I knew what death was. Yeah. And um, I wasn't prepared for that at all. Um, to see, to sit and watch somebody you love who's young and healthy slowly die is a really, really difficult thing. Yeah. Um, and it took a lot from me. But as I said earlier, I also had to create this part of me that was going to be able to get me through this. And um, I was given a lot of really, really amazing gifts from my wife, from cancer, and from life through all of this. Mm -hmm and through getting help and to recognize that there is a tomorrow that we get we get to get up and we get to experience life and just that in itself yeah. is really an amazing thing <clears throat> i'd like to start small and then build back out just daily yeah let's focus on let's go micro okay um you've said this before and it's a common theme, I feel like, is just gratitude. Yes. There are so many things that you could grab onto that would allow you to have a downward spiral, just day by day. Little yes. things that would come up in that situation. Just daily, how did you use tools and skills, or what were they, to get you through a 24-hour period? That's a good question. I think... Um as so many of us do, having a routine is a really important thing for mm -hmm. a lot of us. Um, you know, so much of what we do is based on a routine, and so there's a lot of comfort in that. Yeah. And so having a routine is a really big thing for me. Exercise is a really big thing for me also. Um, I, I know if I go more than two days without getting out or being outside or going to the gym or whatever, that I, I can feel it physically, yeah. mentally, I can feel the Same. difference. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, I think that, uh, having the routine, regular exercise, um, as we've talked about, you know, I, I, I started trying meditation and I yeah. found that to be incredibly helpful. And then, you know, just something I know early on, uh, after I lost Mindy, you know, something that you introduced me to was yoga nidra. Yeah. And that's been incredibly helpful too. And oh, that's good. something that I still practice and, and I, I, I can tell the difference when I do it and when I don't. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And for those 
listening, not familiar with yoga nidra, it's like a, um, it's not necessarily a normal yoga flow practice, but it is creating awareness in your body to kind of down regulate and bring on more restful sleep and, or just calm throughout the day. How does, um, how does that work for you? I, I, for me, I find what it does is it really helps me become a lot more centered. Yeah. Um, and then after I do it, I feel like um, I'm in a much better place. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, to this day, um, going through life and having different experiences, um, sometimes you find I can find myself spinning out of control. Mm-hmm. And if I can recognize that early on, if I can catch that and try to be present with that and make it a little bit better. So to practice some of those types of things, breathing exercises, yeah. you know, getting myself calmed down, going for a walk, whatever it has to be. What does that meditation look like for you? What does the practice look like? Because there's so many, there's so many different there are, ways I'll to go tell you, about I, it. And it's very personal. I often use the Headspace. I find that app pretty nice. Oh, um, neat. Okay. Yeah, but lots of times I just, I, I'll, I'll just, I'll listen to some light music or something like that mm-hmm. and just sit down for no determined time at all and um just have a little bit of quiet yeah <clears throat> no it's um yeah, everybody's practice is a little what do you do different um so almost daily in the morning i do if i have the time i'm very fortunate to have like a hot tub and a little home cold plunge and so i'll go from hot to cold sometimes back to hot and this is just all done within a few minutes and I do breath work where I'll do like an inhale for five, hold for two, and then out for eight. So I do the five, two, eight. And I'll do that for a series of like five. And then because I'm outside, I will one by one start picking up heart noises. And it's very easy to let the environment kind of take over or have it just be white noise in the background. But then you start to pick apart one by one and I'll hear the creek down at the bottom I can hear five different songbirds Um, in the spring you can actually hear our flowers opening up I can hear cars miles and miles away and then I start to think about what their experience might be what their life experience might be and just try, try to create a little bit of gratitude and then I close it back out with another five, two, eight, or maybe a, like a double inhale, like a double sharp inhale, because that's supposed to be helpful for anxiety. And um, that's like my go-to is picking apart the noises, and it really just downregulates. It creates some more um, calm, and, but also awareness of things around you. And um, that's like one of my go-tos. And then sometimes it's a gratitude meditation. Sometimes it's if I'm having a hard time whatever the stressor is determining that it probably is something external to me that I have no control over right. and to control what I can control. So there are a couple different avenues and roads I go down, but that's the, the sounds one is probably my go-to. I like yeah. that. Yeah. It's uh, especially when you're outdoors, man, there's a book called the power of all, which we talked about. I need to give that to you. Um, you can do that within a couple seconds. And when you go out, there are times when, I'm hiking and I want to create a core memory 
and kind of going through that process. When you're at a beautiful overlook, you're at the top of a mountain, your kids are playing out in the back doing some cool thing. Like I will almost intentionally make it a core memory by going through that quick breathwork practice and focusing on the sights and the sounds to like lock it in. And I know that's been really um, powerful for me over the last few years. Yeah, and you talk about the, the the power of nature. Yeah, and that's that's absolutely been a big part of my journey as well. Always, I was a kid who was running around the woods just mm-hmm. like you, playing in the creek. Yeah, and uh, that was always really important to me. And growing up. Uh, same always camping and backpacking and being outdoors um, and that's always where I've felt the most alive is being outside yeah I completely agree I f- um, there's something really powerful in feeling small <laughs> there is yeah <laughs> you realize that um, so many of the things you get caught up on are not really that important but that's so much of life yeah yeah, yeah. zooming back out we talked about just daily um, you said that working through professionals like was just gave you new skills, gave you new outlook. <clears throat> when you look at the journey, were there specific skills that you look back on now? Like if I did not have that, if I didn't learn that, or if I still don't practice today, I don't know where I would be. For I know me, you've mentioned travel and outdoors and, and some meditation, but is there anything else there? Um, I think finding the gratitude in the daily life, finding the gratitude in the mundane is such a big thing because life isn't always spectacular or awesome, mm-hmm. but it, there is a lot to be grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, something that I've been really drawing on is that so many people search for happiness and happiness can be a, a feeling it's kind of the adjective to the noun. What I try to search for now is peace. Um, you can be, you can have peace and happiness. They can coexist. But sometimes you, there are times when you're just not going to be happy. But you can still be at peace. And I try to, it's not always easy, but that seems to be a, a goal and a go-to of mine is to try to frame things in that way. Yeah, I think that's probably really helpful. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you go back to some of the small moments in the work that we do, and I remember for me, I had heard somebody speak on asking the helpers how they're doing, and I remember it was it really resonated with me, and. One of the, within the week, one of the next calls I ran was helping a gentleman and his wife. The wife was on hospice because of cancer. And whatever was going on, they wanted her to be transported to the hospital. And while we're doing the work up and transferring her over, I kind of looked over to the husband and I remember thinking, um, this is a great time to just to check in with him. I said, you know, sir, how are you? And it wasn't like a, hey, how's it going? It's a, it was much more deeper, genuine, how are you doing? And that was one of the most profound moments for me because he broke down in his kitchen. His wife is in the hospital bed in the living room. And he go through like just tears. 
He says, nobody ever asked me that question, and I'm not okay. And that really stuck with me. You, I can see how you have probably been in maybe a similar situation. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, you know, people would always ask me, how's your wife, how's your wife, how's your wife? <laughs> and along the way, I realized is, is that what they're also saying is, how are you? Mm-hmm. in the best way that they knew how to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, to be very on the nose, are there things that people should not ask? Or maybe ask in a different or more intelligent way? For me personally, no. Yeah. No. Because, I, you know, I want to share my life with other people. We wanted to share that journey with other people. Mm-hmm. And so, No. And, and, you know, she put so much of that out there to begin with, that there wasn't a lot that was unsaid. And that's something I want to emphasize, too, is, you know, you were talking earlier, and a lot of my position came from my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, even in her death, um, we talked about everything. Yeah. Nothing was off the table. That's great. And recognizing what was going on and being able to sit down and talk about it. And I know for her, her biggest fear was me. Yeah. And I know that she put herself through that hell mm-hmm. for me. And that came with a lot of, um, it became, uh, for a while, it felt like it was something I had to find, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't happy to begin with, and yeah. that was really hard. Um, but to be able to sit with that for a while and see she um, she gave me so many gifts, Josh. She, before she died, um, she sat me and her best friend down. And um, it was just a couple of weeks before she had passed away. And this was our next door neighbor, and we'd lived next door to each other for 25 years. The three of us did everything in life together. She sat us down and she said, you guys, I just need you to listen to me. I have something I need to tell you, and I just need you to sit there and shut up and listen. She said, I see in the way that the two of you have grown and learn to love each other in the way that the two of you have put so much love and compassion into caring for me. And she said that nothing would make me happier than if the two of you were to end up together. And in doing that, she, she allowed me to start thinking about the rest of my life yeah. while she was still alive. And so much of that, you know, doing starting my grief process early. I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time, but I recognize that now. Yeah. Um, that um, she allowed me to do that. She allowed me to do that work. You know, I, I know people who either have a spouse who died suddenly or, um, or they didn't talk about anything. And I see what a gift it was. So, so much of where I am is because of a lot of the work I did early on and because of what a beautiful person my wife was. Yeah. That's, um, 
I'm just like in awe of the profound love and respect and maturity with which you both handled this entire process and to allow that kind of gift towards the end of this is, um, I don't know, it just can't be understated. Yeah, I think there's this recognition that uh, after a loss like that, that life does go on. And you're still here. And I'm still here. And life is still really, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. It just looks a lot different than it used to. Yeah. Um, In so many ways, I look back at that experience, and I don't even recognize the person that did that. You know, even looking at pictures sometimes, Mm -hmm. I don't recognize that person. Like I was saying earlier, I feel in a lot of ways that I had to create something in order to get myself through that. Mm-hmm. And then once she she died, I was able to to recreate myself again. Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate also, just shortly after she died, I, I retired from the department. Mm-hmm. And that allowed me so many opportunities to heal, to not be working, to find the space, the time, and the help that I needed without work. Yeah. Um, there was a big part of me that didn't want to go back to work and always be the guy whose wife died. Okay. And, you know, I guess I probably um, haven't, uh, I don't have as much of a connection to the job as I, I wish I, I did in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that is also realizing that that's just not where my life is anymore. Sure. That's fair. Yeah. So try to t- maintain the friendships that are important um, through work. You know, I mean, it, it's a brotherhood. Yeah. And so many of these guys, they went through this journey with me. You know, so many of these guys did work subs for me and took care of us and made meals and helped us in so many different ways. I can't even tell you how far this goes. So at one point, we had a little place up in Maine on a lake. And we were up there in um, 2020, and uh, Mindy got really sick. And um, she ended up in the hospital during COVID. We're up in Maine. Mm-hmm. So she was in the Maine Med in Portland. And I felt like I was there by myself. I was there by myself. Yeah, sure. And um, I was sleeping in my truck in the parking garage because I couldn't go inside and I wasn't going to leave her. And um, one afternoon, um, some guys from the Portland Fire Department showed up. And they brought me phone chargers, you know, food, uh, all sorts of stuff. And my union had called their union and just said, hey, we got a guy who needs help. And they jumped in and they helped me. And that's so much about what this is, is the fact that none of us, are, can't, we can't do this alone. We yeah. need help, no matter what that looks like. If that's your buddy at work, if that's a friend, a family, mm-hmm. or if it's a professional. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I remember talking to your dad, and he gave me a couple of stories about how supportive everybody was. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's good to know that it's alive and well. And I think there's something just interesting there where hopefully we allow somebody the honor of saying, 
you know, I need help. Um, because if that, if we don't do that and then we realize that they were struggling, like as a friend, that would, that would hurt. You it, know. It's going to be the hardest thing you do is yeah. ask for help. Mm-hmm. If I had to give a piece of advice to somebody just coming in, mm-hmm. I would say, be prepared. At some point in your career, you're going to have to ask for help. And that's okay. And that's okay. Yeah. And not only is it okay, it's it needs to be encouraged. Yeah. Yeah. What Was there a hallmark moment or was there a lot of things laid out in front of you or that you started picking apart that said this is the right decision to retire? No. Yeah. No, really. <laughs> um, you know, I always, I, I, I didn't know exactly how long I wanted to go, but we were always very, very careful about our money. Yeah. Um, we, you know, I always put money in my deferred comp, mm-hmm. um, and she did the same. Um, we lived a relatively frugal lifestyle. You know, we don't live extravagantly at yeah. all. Um, so financially, after she passed away, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to do that. What I did is I went out and got my financial advisor, and I would encourage everyone to do that as yeah. well if you're thinking about retiring. And so sitting down with him and getting an idea financially if this was even something I could do. Because mm-hmm. um, I didn't know what I was going to do if I couldn't retire. I had taken time off of work. I was not in a place emotionally where I was able to go back. I'd run out of FMLA. Yeah. And so, I mean, the department was wonderful. They were working with me. Yeah, they extended me leave. Um, but, I, you know, I couldn't keep that going. And so for me, it was this recognition that um, I couldn't go back. And mm-hmm. so that's a big part of why I made that decision, because I had the ability to make that decision. Yeah. So financially, um, everything looked pretty good for me, um, provided I lived, you know, within my means. Sure. And that's, you know, it's been two years, and that's that's been the case. It, it turns out that retirement's really not as scary as everyone <laughs> thinks it's going to be. Um, you have so much more time to just do what's important once you retire. Mm-hmm. And we, for so many years, we, we take um, such a piece of ourselves. In retirement, it's an opportunity to, to try to get some of that back. Yeah. You hear a lot of these guys say they retire and then they go off and do other jobs, you know, mm-hmm. agencies or, you know, even guys driving buses or dump trucks. And yeah, right. I, I didn't want to, you know, I don't want to be that, that person either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, tr- I've tried to create opportunities for myself that uh, make my life really good. Yeah. And some of that has been um, Maine, right? It how, has. How how is it that Maine called to you? <laughs> <laughs> so, gosh, probably about 15 years ago, I remember I was talking to my wife, and I said, "I want to go, I want to go up to Maine for a couple of weeks this summer." And she said, "Okay, well, you, you find something." So I, I went on Craigslist at the time, and I found this little place on on a little lake in western Maine. I was like, okay, so I, you know, sent this guy a message, and he responded, and we went up there, and right away we fell in love with it. Yeah, and we started going back every year. Um, 
you know, I think at first it was a week and then it was two weeks and, you know, later it became three weeks. <laughs> and so we, then we started looking at property and looking all over Maine and we realized where we wanted to be was where we were. Mm-hmm. And so we started looking on our little lake and um, I guess about nine years ago, we found a place that was uh, in foreclosure and uh, we made the bank an offer and they accepted the offer and we found ourselves owning a home up there. And so at that point we had a home in Maryland and a home in Maine and I still do. And after I retired, my fiance and I started talking about where it is that we want to be. And one of the things we wanted was to be somewhere we can be in nature. Um, and being up there on a lake, it's, it's a very quiet place. And so your whole front yard is essentially a park yeah. that nobody else uses. <laughs> and it's a very healing place, and it's always been that way. Yeah. And so for us, we get to create a space together that's ours. We've been working with an architect and mm-hmm. creating this, this small, mindful home for us yeah. that we can walk away from and go and travel. Um, and my partner has done a lot of travel also. She actually took a year and a half and rode her bike around the world. Oh, so amazing. we both have a lot of wanderlust. And yeah. I'm at a point where I'm young enough to be able to go and do that. And I want to do that now. And that's one of the the really wonderful things about the fire department is we do get the opportunity to retire young. Yeah. And I would encourage anyone who wa- anything that there's that you want to do to do it as early as you can after you retire. Yeah. Um, you know, I I feel the physical, the emotional and the mental um, toll from the job like all of us do. Sure. And um, I um, I find that uh, giving myself the space to be with that is probably the best thing I can do. Yeah. It seems like it, it, this is an everyday thing. It's not just something that you can take for granted. And I, I know the same speaks true to me is like the skills that you've learned and the experiences that you've had and have accumulated that you can't just use those skills when the temperature runs hot. It's a, it can, it needs to be an everyday practice. That's so true. And that way you can truly mitigate and stave off those really low points or when you do have them, you're so much more resilient to them. Yeah. I think there's also a recognition with that. Josh is also, some days just suck. <laughs> and, you know, and it's okay to just lean into that and not try yeah. to make it something it's not. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I've been in a place where I've just been having a really bad day and you try to make it something else mm-hmm. and you just end up in a bigger mess. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. So sometimes just to give yourself over to that, okay, maybe this is going to be a bad day. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I need to find an a gentler way, an easier way to, to go about this. Yeah. Uh, on myself, generally, because yeah. that's what it comes back to. No, I really like uh, the, the word you used, being gentle. Yeah. And it's it's so true. You, sometimes you really do need to be gentle with yourself because, like you said, we are hard on ourselves. We don't and do we it gotta well. we've got to be productive. And when you're having those hard days, you've got to think. Like, I know I think about 
all the things that I should be doing or should be doing better and why do I feel this way and just knowing that you said yeah lean into it yeah. and be open about it but yes. you know today's just not one of those days but I'm going to try to and that, and that again, that's another practice. I mean, um, so much of work is you push through, right? Yeah. It's hard. We just push through. We keep going. Yeah. Um, you don't. You don't stop. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't. You don't say, "Oh, this is hard. I'm not going to do it." Right. Um, so it's it's not something that comes naturally always. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to change your outlook so often, um, and sometimes it's okay to not. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's so much of that recognition that um, you were talking about, you know, looking for this happiness, and something that I've found to be helpful is that that um, it's right here. You know, it's not it's not in the future. Mm-hmm. The future doesn't exist. You know, it's something that we've manifested in our own heads mm-hmm. um, that could either be a reality or not yeah um the past has already happened Mm -hmm. and so really this only this the only moment we have is right now yeah and there is happiness in that um but to say i'm looking for it um implies that it's not there yeah that's really powerful yeah that is really powerful to to constantly live on one end or the other of looking ahead or behind you but that's it's, what we do as humans. It, yeah, it is. And it's not saying that you can't have visions or goals or look or no. plan for that, but to yeah, I, let that hijack you. I, uh, I started going to this acupuncturist. Actually, she um, was working on my wife when she was getting treatment, mm-hmm. and she said she wanted to start working on me. And I'd not done it before, um, but I, I started seeing her, and, and I really, really like her. And mm-hmm. she just has a lot of these little pearls of wisdom. One of the things she talks about is this veranda view, mm-hmm. where you're sitting in a safe place, but you're able to look at the future from there. But you're very much in the present looking at the future. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Um, one of our friends also an acupuncturist and a doctor of Chinese medicine. <clears throat> I've actually had her on here. I need to get her back on. Um, she's great. And we were actually around the five, this is, it might have been Thanksgiving. Uh, my wife and I and her, Laura, were all sitting by the fire and we were talking about some struggles that we were going through with work. And she just had some really sage advice of, you know, sit with that, almost like meditate on that. But your body is not going to, lie to you so think about the situation that you're in and where you want to go with it and listen to what your body tells you and then think about the other thing that you want to do whether that's change jobs or do this or that and then listen to what your body tells you again and you're probably going to get the answer that you're looking for you know because your body deep down is very intelligent and is you know it will um and some point going through life and our careers, um, some of that does break down too, right? Like mm-hmm. our bodies aren't always doing what's best for us. Yeah. Um, again, a lot of that goes back to resilience. Just keep going through. Even if this is hurting you, whatever, just keep doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I was going somewhere with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Maybe I'll help you out. Um, I like I, I like and often use the word resilience in a healthy way, though. I know we've talked about just the mindfulness and nature 
and the exercise and ultras and relationships where you're at now in life like you have experienced things personal and professional that could take somebody who maybe doesn't have the skills and really chew them up and spit them out and i'm not saying you're, you've come out of this entirely clean but you you are handling everything that life has thrown at you in a really graceful way Thank as you. best you can what does healthy resilience mean to you what does it look like to you i think that uh we have to be very open-minded um, and be willing to surrender to the things that we can't control. So much of this is out of our control. Um, and, and find the things that we can and do what you want with that. Um, that's a good question. I, I, you know, going forward. I've never really thought about the fact that I've been through a lot. I mean, I guess if mm -hmm. I look at, yes, I've been through a lot, but so have so many other people. Yeah. And so this is just my journey. I don't know mm -hmm. that it's special or unique or anything like that. I think we are all probably have our, our own journey, you know, yeah. and I'm just one individual sharing that. <laughs> um, but um, I think resilience for me is... Um, the ability to continue to grow, yeah. and um, and to not resist change, because so much of life is about change, um, and you and I have talked about this. Yeah, it it's inevitable. Life is going to change, mm -hmm. and it is what do we do with that when it happens? Um, and for me. Um, it's this recognition that uh, there is still a tomorrow. Yeah. In so many ways. Mm -hmm. And it seems like your tomorrows are uh, lining up to something where you have, cur you have curated something really special with your new partner. Yeah. And with Maine and with daily living. You know, you were... I like that word. You're curating something that speaks to you and provides yes. healing and provides gratitude. It's very intentional at this point. My life, yeah. it seems to be. You know, we. So, um, Jamie, my 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 partner. Mm -hmm. um, I have I, often said that I feel like the two of us have come to the same place on very different roads. Yeah. Um, so much of my what I want out of a relationship um, is based on what I know to be good and true. Yeah. And I think so much of what, um, well, I can't really speak for her, but, you know, I, I feel like um, we have the, we had the blessing of being able to come to this place together. Yeah. Um, and we've been given so many gifts together also. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> well, um Before we close out completely, I want to make sure I give you the opportunity if there was anything that you wanted to, to speak on with the fire service journey, the wife journey, or um, where life is taking you. I don't want to leave anything unturned. So if I have, 
like I said, you are a very sage person that I look up to and uh, enjoy rubbing elbows with. So is there anything that I've missed? Anything that you want to preach to me about? Because <laughs> <laughs> I love our time together whenever we do get the time. I do too. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we were talking earlier uh, and you were talking about the body's response. And, um, you know, I recently experienced this this involuntary response that I, I was not able to control. Mm. Um, my union offered um, the USD, the, uh, the, the cancer screening oh, yeah. that they yeah. do. Yeah. Um, and, it's, I, you know, I know it's several thousand dollars normally, and they're doing it for a couple hundred, I think yeah. it's 300 and something dollars. And, um, and so I recognized that I wanted to do it, but as soon as I signed up to do it, I realized that this was going to be difficult for several reasons. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of it, just that idea of um, opening up what could potentially be yeah. cancer. Sure. Uh, and my experience with that, and it scared me initially. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I went down to go do it, and it was at a fire station. And I hadn't been in a fire station since I've retired. And I found myself in the parking lot, and I found my heart rate was just going through the roof. I could, I could feel it in my ears. Yeah. And so I sat in my car, tried to get myself calmed down, practiced some of those breathing exercises we talked about. And I, just, I couldn't. I could not yeah. get myself calmed down as much as I tried. And, you know, there's part of me that thought about, just just leave, <laughs> you know, and, and knowing that that wasn't actually an option. <laughs> and um, so I went in, and they checked my blood pressure, and it was through the roof. I don't have hypertension, yeah. and but I was hypertensive, and I just could not. I mean, I was sweaty. My my heart rate was going, my... I, I, it was breathing fast. Yeah. It was this real physical response to stress. Yeah. And I think it's okay to recognize that sometimes we don't have control over that. Yeah. And then what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, I just spoke with uh, one of my colleagues at work when we were talking to a recruit class about um, some of our Mayday experiences at work and um, line of duty death stuff. And we both have this part in our discussions where we talk about experiencing similar things. And before I remember thinking, um, I'm not like a heavy coffee drinker, like I have my one, like I enjoy espresso and I have my drink in the morning and then that's kind of it. I'm like, I don't think I had too much coffee. Like I thought I had too much coffee and my heart's kind of racing. I'm like, I kind of get into palpitations. Like I don't understand. I didn't think I drank that much coffee. And then um, they start feeling it in your hands and then the chest tightening. They're like, man, maybe I just maybe I need a nap. Like, what, what's going on? And then you start creating that awareness. Like, oh, no, this is this is some deep-seated anxiety because I have these things going on. That's right. And we were kind of laughing about how uh, we're so damn stubborn sometimes that we are not listening to our bodies and trying to push through, as you said. But even mm-hmm. when we do listen... It Sometimes. doesn't mean you're going to get the response you want. Yeah, yeah. And again, going back to that, just giving yourself over to that sometimes, as unpleasant as that is, yeah. that I can't do anything to make this better at the moment. 
yeah. other than just sit with it. Yeah. And that's true with often a lot of things in life. There are times in life where it feels like you can't take a deep breath mm-hmm. and you give it a little time and a little space and you can breathe a little better and yeah. a little better and a little better and every day gets a little bit easier. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. <laughs> but this is all part of the experience, right? Yeah. This is what life is. Yeah. It's like you said before, you lean in and your uh, zero to 10 pen scale becomes maybe a little broader or a little more resilient. And um, your ability to experience some things, you're able to come out, you know, maybe some chinks in the armor, but you're going to come out a little more resilient again on the other side of it. And that's what I think um, a lot of what retirement looks like is is figuring out what that's going to be for you. Yeah. Um, how, how are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I have, we have a handful of mutual friends and 100% of the time, um, whenever we have talked about you behind your back, <laughs> we have <laughs> the resounding message is that it doesn't matter if it's a 60 second check-in or if it's dinner or if it's a coffee or, or whatever, an outing. 100% of the time, we walk away from that conversation better people. And we um, certainly have more gratitude. And I don't know, a fresher perspective on things. That, that's and the nicest thing you could ever say to me. Thank <laughs> you. I really appreciate you, that. Uh, you're, you're a good man, Jamie Dunlavey. And Thank you. everybody appreciates you. And um, you have a lot of really good things to say. So I know I sincerely appreciate you uh, hanging out for a little bit and, and talking through this because you've been a lot and you've got a, you got a lot of great things to say and I um I wish nothing but the best for you and Jamie too once you Thank get you. into Maine hopefully we get to hang out a little bit more before Absolutely. you go up so and I and I wouldn't be where I I would I am without the love and the support of the people around me yeah. my friends my family I mean the gym community the work community yeah my home life everything yeah yeah we all need somebody else, like you said. You, you need you need somebody to sit in the mud with you on occasion, and yeah. those people that will help lean in with you. I, you had said something earlier, and I was talking to my dad, and he reminded me of this that uh, just recently, that after Mindy was diagnosed, somebody asked me, "What what do you need?" And I said, "I just need somebody to listen to me." Yeah. And sometimes that's the best thing you can do for somebody is just listen. Yeah. Knowing that you can't fix their problem, you can't make it better in any way, um, but you can listen and you can take some of that with them. Yeah. You don't need to give solutions in that moment. You no. just need to sit there with them. That's yeah. right. You just let them know they're not alone. Yes. Yeah. No, I love that. It's powerful. 